Well, this uh, was kind of a good lead-in for our study in Philippians this morning, because the issue of abortion is a moving one in multiplied ways. No matter where you stand on the issue, no matter what's happened in your life or in your past, no matter what you're facing today or what you'll face in the future, there are a lot of issues like a one like that that stirs our hearts even in the sense of politics. And we know that this is a political year. How many of you saw the presidential debate and maybe the vice presidential debate that just happened recently? Um, you know, a lot of us probably saw that or maybe looked at it on YouTube or saw snippets of it, even mockery um, snippets of it or things like that. Well, it's, it's very popular to watch a debate because Politics are moving. They touch the core convictions and passions of our lives. You ever got into a political discussion with a family member or a friend and it not go so well? You ever have a, you know, a, a kind of emotionally charged discussion all of a sudden? You know, you're just kind of talking along. You didn't mean anything. You're just talking about a candidate or you're talking about a position or a political party. And all of a sudden, you know, there's dynamite on the floor and it's lit. Why? Why does that happen? Well, it's because it's touching on things that are our core convictions. These are our passions that people are talking about, that people are voting for. Is that a normal thing for us to get emotional or impassioned about political positions, wherever you are on the political spectrum? I say it is. It is because we are... Men and women, boys and girls, made in the image of God. We're thinkers. We are people who feel the heart of issues. We, we want our country to have a good reputation. We're taxpayers. We are citizens. We, we have buy-in, and in our political system, we actually get a vote so we can persuade things or influence things in multiplied ways. So, yeah, we... We should very much, I think, be impassioned, inflamed, indignant over issues. It could even be wrong not to be indignant, not to have some righteous anger over some issues, not to care about the poor or social justice or the life of the unborn. I mean, to not care about those things, to not care about the war in Afghanistan, people dying, our troops, enemies, uh, friends, people around the world, to not care about that, to turn a blind eye to that and just sort of put, put it on autopilot, that could be sin. And so, again, I think there's everything right and important about being emotionally involved in our political arena and what's going on. And if not for the gospel and for pulpits and for the church, I think a lot of the revolutions that we've seen in our country would never have happened. The children would still perhaps be in the machine shops or down in the mines, right? We may still have slavery, uh, women are, uh, being uh, abused or, or hate crimes against women. There are all kinds of things that I believe the gospel, as, as sort of the subtext story behind the political initiatives, is getting its way. The truth is marching on through our country in terms of gospel influence. It's important. Let me ask you this. As moved as you can become about political issues, are you comparably, and I'm not even saying more, I just mean, is there even a comparable com comparison of emotion 
for the advancement of the gospel. As moved as you can become by a political debate or a position or a party or a person or a personality or political issues, does the gospel move you at all in a similar way? Uh, the advancement of the gospel around the world, that, that movement, does that stir you at all? It's a convicting question. It's convicting for me, the preacher. It's convicting because it's easy to get inflamed and impassioned about political agendas, things that, by the way, we can't ultimately control, things, by the way, that we don't ultimately know the outcome of how the votes are ultimately going to go or what's going to happen. A roller coaster ride that is promised to go up and down and more down than up, right? Are we impassioned about that roller coaster ride that I'm saying, hey, welcome, let's get on it, but at the same time, not passioned, impassioned about the gospel, about the advancement of the kingdom, about people being rescued by the truth of God's word? Are we equally excited about that? I want to argue from Paul's testimony and the testimony of God's word that we're supposed to be more excited about the gospel, about the mission of the cross about what we should be giving our lives to, about what should shape all of our thinking. Everything that we think our life is about should go through the grid of the gospel, the fellowship of the gospel. We should be excited about that most of all. Most of all. Now, I'm not trying to split up the secular from the sacred, and I know that, again, we should view the political issues and agendas of our day through the gospel and for the betterment of the kingdom. But it's very important, I believe, for us to ask ourselves honestly, is my heart engaged in gospel work? Do I care at all about the gospel? Paul did. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Let's just start and stop with that verse because this is a theme verse to the paragraph that we will look through this morning. He says, verse 12 of chapter 1, Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Paul had a gospel mindset, and he's sitting in a prison, chained to a guard, and he's saying that, hey, everything that's led up to this moment is advancing the gospel. The summary of what got him to that moment is doing something to the million people around him at the center point of the Roman Empire, Rome, there is an advancement. And, by the way, that word advance is a very picturesque word. It means to cut and move forward. It was used of pioneers cutting through trees and brush to advance into areas that have never been penetrated. It's used of military advancement where you're cutting away through the brush and you're moving ahead. And he's saying, I'm chained to a guard in my rented house quarters under house arrest. And that's getting it 
done for Christ. And if you look at the end of our paragraph, verse 18, he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Is this man a lunatic? Is he crazy sitting in jail saying, wow, I'm getting it done for Christ? The gospel is powerful. And it comes out in all kinds of unique ways, whether you're John the Baptist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, George Whitfield, John Wesley. I don't care what kind of venue you have or in a jail cell preaching the gospel. It's going out and it's powerful. And it comes out in very unique ways. Paul's mindset gave him joy. And Paul knew that he had, watch this, 100% guaranteed success for his mission. What should we get passionate about? Something we can't control? Well, to a degree. We have a responsibility. We should get passionate about more a mission that's guaranteed 100% success, and that is the gospel going out. Gospel. And I want to show you from Paul's life this morning that the gospel was going out through his unique God-dialed-up circumstances. Because you might say, well, Paul is unique in and of himself. How in the world can I relate to a guy like this? I'm no the Apostle Paul. I don't have his background. I don't have his missionary zeal. How can I um, do something like that where I'm influencing the world around me? Well, these are very unique circumstances that look like Paul was sidelined out of the game And God was getting it done through him in palpable ways, exponential ways, ways that we're talking about 2,000 years later. Okay, this is the gospel and the gospel work. Well, let's look at this verse again, verse 12. He, He wants to prove something out. He's saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's making the case that his situation, chained to a guard, is perfect in terms of God's plan. He wants to prove it with this paragraph. He's proving it with data and proofs that the gospel is going on, that there is an awakening going on in Europe that's going to change the world. He wants them to know that what's led up to this circumstance is God's will. Now, what, what was it that led up to this circumstance? What, what did Paul go through right before he's chained up? Well, I want to give you a brief little survey just to catch you up to how he ended up in jail. It's like we're watching a movie. He's chained to the Roman guard, and then, hey, he's going to just retro um, back to what just happened to get him up to this point. You can read about it in Acts 21 through 28. That's the story at the close of the third missionary journey. Okay, he's done three missionary journeys. He's covered sort of the known world and territory. And now the Lord is is pressing him towards Rome. And at at chapter 28, at the end of the book of Acts, we find him chained up in house arrest in Rome. And that's where he wrote the prison epistles, one of which is the book of Philippians. That's sort of the the backstory. It was wild circumstances that brought Paul to Rome. 
If you were to peek over into Romans chapter 1, I would invite you to do that. Paul says in verse 10 that he wanted to go to Rome. He says, always in my prayers, he's writing to the Romans, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed to coming to you. Now let me just tell you, the circumstances we're going to talk about about how he got to Rome probably are not what Paul had thought about when he was writing this. He didn't think he was going to have this rocky ride to Rome But it was pretty rocky, pretty life-threatening. He wanted to impart them spiritual gifts, strengthen them, mutually encourage them. Turn over to Romans 15. At the end, he begins to, at the end of Romans, he begins to talk about this again. Verse 28 says, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected. He's talking about the relief offering to Jerusalem. He says, I'll leave for Spain. By way of you, I'm, I'm coming, verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So he's, he's thinking joyful thoughts. He's thinking about being refreshed. I'm sure he wasn't thinking, you know, the way that I want to do this is I want to go through a, a bunch of court cases, defend myself, try to avoid a mob and scourgings, and, and, and go to jail in Rome so I can minister to you. That probably was not the life that he was dialing up for himself, but that's exactly what we find in Acts 21 through 28. Paul, at the end of his third missionary journey, you just may remember, he was praying with the elders at Ephesus in Miletus, and he's saying, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going, oh, don't go to Jerusalem. Agabus, this prophet, came by and took his belt off and tied his hands and said, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to be bound up and imprisoned. And they're going, don't go to Jerusalem. And they're weeping over him, thinking they're never going to see him again. Remember that scene? Well, what does he do? He just goes to Jerusalem anyway. So he goes to Jerusalem, shows up, and he's been ministering to Gentiles, but he's from a Jewish heritage. So he's trying to, again, create peace and be all things to all men. And so he, he goes into the temple and ceremonially washes himself in the seven-day washing. But out through that washing, because people knew, the Jews knew that this guy was bringing a different message and bringing the Messiah that they didn't believe in, they surround him. And create a mob scene and accuse him with the same accusations they did against Christ and against Stephen. They said, look, you're blaspheming the temple. You're doing something wrong. Remember they accused Jesus. They said, you're talking about tearing down the temple. Jesus was talking about dying on the cross. Stephen, you're speaking against the temple. Uh, Stephen was speaking against legalism. So they make an accusation against Paul, and they say, look, you've taken this guy Trophimus, who's this well-known Gentile, and you took him into, past the court of Gentiles, into the inner sanctum, and you've defamed and blasphemed the whole thing. So these idolatrous Jews who are bowing down to external temple worship create this mob scene so much so that two centurions, which represents 200 Roman soldiers, had to come to Paul's aid, surround Paul, and rest him away. So he goes into a court scene, Acts 21, 29, and then Acts 21, 38, and they begin even to accuse Paul of being this revolutionary where he is, uh, you know, are you this Egyptian radical who's come, you know, to stir things up? You know, you're sort of bringing assassins in. He's like, no, I'm not that at all. I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm this Jewish-born man. And so he goes into some some trials. They end up ushering him up to Caesarea, which is northwest on the coast there. 
And he's up there, and, he, and you can read about this, but he testifies before Governor Felix, who's this you know, Roman governor, and then he goes to King Agabus, and he's basically sharing his testimony about what's happened to him. But all the while, he's in prison, and this is a two-year process. Okay, has the gospel failed? Has the gospel been you know, squelched? Is, is Roman society stepping on the arrow hose of the gospel? Not at all. I mean, what circumstances do you have? What are you discouraged about? Well, you got to keep in mind that God's gospel will prevail, is prevailing. And so Paul, though, um, you know, to avoid undue punishment, ultimately declares his Roman citizenship. He avoids being scourged, but goes to these trials for two years and justice delayed is justice denied in his mind. So he goes, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just appeal to Caesar. And I, he probably in his mind didn't think, well, this is how I'll get to Rome, but that's exactly what happened. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And then you can read about one of the most harrowing journeys um, on a boat, on a ship, that you could ever read about in Acts chapter 27. He's shipwrecked around Malta, and he survives. And, and somehow, when you come to Acts chapter 28, there you have Paul, and you might turn over to Acts 28, the last chapter. You have Paul, who's chained to a Roman soldier, verse 16, as he comes into Rome. And so verse 17 says he was there for three days, and he, and he being, watch this, a very strategic evangelist and a Jewish rabbi, a well-known Jewish rabbi trained under Gamaliel, calls all the synagogue leaders to come around him. He says, all right, I, I'm here, so I'm on mission, and I'm going to start going through natural means for me to get an audience and begin to share Christ in Rome. So he works with the Jew first and then the Greek. He works with the Jewish rabbis, the synagogue leaders first. These were high officials in the land. They were people of uh, you know, high reputation, had political sway and influence even in the Roman society. He's calling him to himself to explain um, the message of the gospel. He's in essence saying that there is hope for Israel. Look at verse 20. Well, verse 20 says, For this reason I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So they're sort of confused by what's happened. It says, But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, that means Christianity, this new movement, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So even through negativity, this message is the buzz around Rome. Okay, this message is going viral. Who is this guy, the Apostle Paul? What is this sect called Christianity? We want to hear about it, and Rome wanted to hear about it. It was a viral message. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, meaning a day of trial, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Do you see this? From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and they were to and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So what was Paul vested in at this point? Exposition. Teaching the word of God. 
tying together the story of Moses as it pointed to Jesus. That's what he wanted to do. Did he, did he you know, stand on a street corner and preach to whoever? I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But no, he was, he was going through his natural, normal circumstances. I'm a prisoner who can receive people. I'm going to call out for the religious leaders because they'll connect with me. We've got something in common, and they'll open the scriptures about it. The word will do its work, and that's actually what happened. Look at verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Guess what? Some people got saved. Some were convinced. Verse 30. He lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. In other words, Paul realized that he was set up with a great venue because he was talking to everybody. We're going to talk about how many people he talked to. But he talked to people and they were believing and they were exponentially sharing this message because so much through the circumstances had led to this unique moment where he could give this unique platform to the Jews first and then to the imperial guard, which was a pipeline all the way up to Caesar himself being radical for Jesus, and that's who Paul was. You might say, yeah, that's interesting for him, but is that really real life for me? Well, I mean, what are your circumstances? You know, what has God dialed up for you? When you begin to think in terms of gospel-mindedness and how the Word does its work, all of a sudden factors like age, popularity, speaking ability, how much you know, even in terms of the gospel, your theological depth, your aptitude, a lot of that stuff is sort of a wash when you begin to think that if Paul's, Paul's circumstances could give him this incredible output ministry, what are your circumstances where God is giving you output ministry for the kingdom? I mean, wouldn't you just want to go down in history Reaching your neighbors for Christ or reaching a community for Christ? What about anchorage for Christ? I mean, wouldn't that be enough? It would be for me. I mean, I, you know, reaching a couple people for Christ? Well, God has given you circumstances which are an evangelistic mission post for you to give the gospel out in unique ways. I guarantee it. He's called us to go out into all the world and make disciples. What is that? You know, is that really a sort of a diagram that's supposed to be laid on to every church in terms of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? Is that really a mission strategy? I don't think so. I mean, I don't mean to upend that. I know it's kind of a nice way to think, but really what Jesus was saying to the disciples, both in Matthew 28 and then later in Acts 1-8, is he's saying, look, you're in Jerusalem right now. Go out to all the world. And make disciples. Guess what? They did. Guess where all the world is? Guess where the outermost parts of the earth is? Anchorage, Alaska. We're part of that mission program. We're not making a new one. We're part of that one. And we're reaching this area for Christ. Now, we can reach other areas for Christ too. That's great. But we're reaching this area for Christ. I'm hoping people will walk in here that don't know Jesus yet and will be reached for Christ this morning, this very moment. That's how real the gospel is to us. This is not a teaching post first and foremost. This is a gospel post first and foremost. I went to church. I was an unbeliever. I got saved. 
Why? Because of the gospel. And that's how you got to think. I'm in a family. What am I doing? I'm praying with people. I'm giving the gospel. People are getting saved. I'm at a job. I'm at a job. Why? I'm at a community league. Why? I'm doing this. I'm part of this club, this organization. Why? Because there are relationships that you make where people know you're a believer and you talk about Jesus or you just are living for Jesus. People see that and they get saved. That's gospel mission. That's what Paul was like and that's what he thought about. And thinking that way, my friends, makes you the happiest person on earth. Because nobody had circumstances like Paul had. Shipwrecked three times, scourged, half beaten to death, left for dead. I mean, this guy was a beat up, bruised up, messed up guy physically. And he was the happiest man on on the earth, on the planet, because he thought in terms of gospel outreach. Why do you get up in the morning? The gospel. Why do you go to bed at night to rest up, to be on mission the next day for the gospel? Why do you pray with people in front of people? Why do you pray for your food? Why do you why do you why do you do anything? The gospel. That's it. That's that's what consumes a Christian who's happy. If you're not happy, this is the way to be happy. This is the way to do it. Two ways to know you're advancing the gospel. How do you know? You're not Paul. You're, you know, I, I'm not claiming to be Paul. But how do you know in your life that you're advancing the gospel, that something's happening? How, when do you know there's action? It's like fishing. I mean, when, when do you know to start reeling in, you know? How do you sense that something's moving through your life and your witness? Well, two ways. Two ways. Number one. You can see that people are listening to your gospel message. Now, I put that word your there specifically because it's the gospel which is the same, but it's coming through your unique life and mission field. Are people listening? Do do you see any fruit that people are aware that you're a Christian and are listening to what you're saying? This is how Paul proved, by the way, that he being chained to a guard under house arrest uh, was for the sake and the advancement of the gospel. He proved it. Look at verse 13. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Stop there. He said, Look, I'm chained up, and the whole imperial guard knows why I'm chained up. They're listening to my gospel message. They're tuned into that. Now, Imperial Guard or Praetorian Guard or Praetoria, uh, this word here could be talking, instead of a a, a group of troops, it could be talking about Caesar's palace or Caesar's household itself. This is kind of a metaphor of Caesar's household speaking to Caesar's troops. His primary 9,000, you know, um, hand-selected, cream of the crop, Roman soldiers. That's probably what Paul's referring to, the imperial guard. But he's also talking about how through the imperial guard, it went up the pipe into Caesar's palace, through the different corridors of government. People were abuzz about the apostle Paul, what he stood for, and what it meant that he was sort of filling in the explanation to this massive movement called Christianity. They called it the way. It was something that was rapidly changing the culture, or at least mixing things up. As one person put it, uh, Christians were turning the world upside down. So Paul became the chief spokesperson through prison, through guards, 
to answer questions to the government in Rome that was paying attention. The Imperial Guard, they were well-pensioned, well-selected, well-trained men that had guard duty of the Apostle Paul. And the reason that, you know, the cream of the crop troops were chained one by one to Paul is because Paul was designated to have an audience with Caesar. And so you got to guarantee that that appointment is going to be kept. And the only way to guarantee that appointment was to put the top chief men chained to him there. That was it. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul called himself an ambassador in chains. That word for chains there is literally talking about the chain links of a chain. Or in other words, I'm an ambassador that's wrist to wrist with Roman soldiers. So when he would be chained to a Roman soldier, he would pray for that soldier. He would talk about Jesus. He had nothing to lose, right? He's chained up. So, hey, here I am. I mean, what a release. It's like people who are on their deathbed that really feel the release to evangelize. Why? Because you got nothing else to lose. There's no shame. There's nothing that's going to happen to you. That could be worse circumstances. Your life is already on the line. You could be executed. So, hey, I'm just going to unashamedly release for Christ. And that's what he was doing here. These Roman guards would be chained to him 24 hours a day, six-hour sessions. So you had four guards a day, a 24-hour period, connected to Paul. I sort of, you know, did some quick math uh, early this morning. 416 different guards would have been chained to him. But these top officials, these ones that actually had political sway in the government, determining even who the next Caesar would be, that's the prominence of these Roman guards in this situation. We're hearing the gospel from a man who was trained under the chief Pharisees, Gamaliel, who was fully knowledgeable of the Old Testament and illumined by the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant to be able to put it all together for Christ to these men. They were impacted, and they were talking to people about Christ and the gospel. Look over at 2 Timothy. I mean, I I just have always been impressed by 2 Timothy 2, because this is Paul's gospel strategy, and I think it's very important to look down at it. A lot of times we believe that we need to be like the, uh, the Ethiopian Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, we have these sort of cold turkey encounters where we've never met, you know, the person and we're, we're in full gospel um, outreach mode. And that happens and should happen. You know, we, we think, well, I'm not John the Baptist. I'm not the preacher, you know, type. So I'm not really the gospel guy. I'm not the mouth and the body. Yeah, we have preachers that get audiences and share Christ. And that's powerful and important. But the gospel strategy for all of us, which all of us are called to give the gospel, all of us are called to be salt and light, all of us are called, as Philippians 2, to hold forth the word of life. I mean, this, this is evangelism. Which, by the way, i got a sidebar here for a moment. Because it's first hour, you know, i, I got to do this. Um, no, I, I used to... I, I was raised sort of in an Arminian background, and, and they talked about sharing Christ a lot, and I really appreciated that a lot. I mean, the evangelistic emphasis that I grew up in and heritage is powerful. It's, it's in me. But I used to read the Bible and go, well, where, where are the gospel programs? Where's the, you know, the short-term missions trip? I'm not against those. I like those. But where, where's the, you know, we're going we're gonna to get trained in gospel methodology and go out and share Christ. Where, you know, we're going to do that. Where is that strategy? Well, you can sort of look at it in the book of Acts, how missionaries were sent. And I believe in missionaries. But 
Isn't evangelism for all of us all the time? Where is it? Well, when you think about evangelism in terms of the way that Paul evangelized, it's everywhere. You're looking for it in a program, you can't find it. If you look at it as your life, it's everywhere. Everything you do is evangelism. It's either good evangelism or really bad evangelism, but it's evangelism. It's always with the intent to advance the gospel. How does it work out practically? Look at 2 Timothy 2. Paul is telling Timothy. He wrote this after he got out of uh, his house arrest, by the way. He wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus after that. So we know he gets out of jail, doesn't get killed at this point. He says, uh, that you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, sharing the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. All right, what is he doing? Paul is carrying out evangelism through, through Timothy here. How? Well, he's making a disciple. It's Matthew 28. A disciple's a learner. He's got a student. And he's saying, look, what I want you to do is take um, the, the teachings of Christ that I've given you and, and identify some people that will listen to you that are strong and tell them. And tell them to find some other people that are strong and, and to tell them. Okay, I mean, these, you know, business uh, models that are sort of pyramid scheme where you tell some people, tell some people, tell some people, uh, that, <laughs> that really wasn't original with them. I mean, look at this. This is the exponential advancement of the invisible kingdom of God that's going through entrusting truth to people who will listen, who will tell other people, who will tell other people, who will tell other people. That's, have you ever heard of businesses growing by word of mouth rather than by flashy advertisements? You know, where they know the food is good down in Girdwood at the Double Muskie. It doesn't, I mean, you know, it's not convenient to drive down there, but you kind of aim to get there at least once a year, right? Why? Because the food is good. That's the God. You, the gospel's good. So you just tell people that will tell other people that will tell other people, and it begins to fill out gospel mission. Well, skip down. Look at verse 9. I mean, this gets real practical to what we're talking about. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You see that? That is gospel mindset. That's joy in the Christian life. You know, the word isn't bound. It's getting out there for Christ. So Paul knew that people were listening. Who was listening? We'll go back to Philippians 1. It said the imperial guard was listening, and to all the rest that are my imprisonment, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That phrase at the end, that my imprisonment is for Christ, is incidentally it's thrown forward at the beginning of the sentence. He's saying, look, I'm proving my imprisonment, my chain, literally, my bond, literally, is for Christ. How am I proving that? Well, look, all these Roman soldiers, they're listening. They're talking about it. They're seeing my life. They're hearing my message, and they're responding. And by the way, everybody else who's coming by and visiting me, remember we talked about that in Acts 28, all these people in highways and byways, they're talking about this message, and it's getting out, and it's all around the million-plus population in Rome. It works. I've told you the story about when I went away to college after getting saved at 17 and they were bad-mouthing me at the community college and a 
good friend of mine took up for me and started to, to say, look, you know, we all need to be on fire for Christ. That's just one window into my life of how the gospel works. It's happening. You say it's hard to be a gospel citizen. It's hard to share Christ. Listen, if you, in the most subtle way, take a stand for Christ, people know about it. They see it. It, it doesn't take much. You don't have to wear the shirt, the Jesus t-shirt at, at work. You don't have to have the Jesus bumper sticker, you know. You don't have to have the bumper sticker, right? You know, I'm safe on board, you know, whatever. Yeah, you don't have to. All you have to do is just be a Christian, just in the most subtle ways, and people will see that. And it will be a stark difference in terms of how they even treat you. People are wondering, there's really two religions in the world. You remember this? There's self-worship, performance-based religions. That's all the other ones ever. And then there's Jesus. I've got a personal relationship with Jesus that came by grace and not by works. And that's the gospel. And so people are wondering, hmm, okay, you work with me, I work with you. Are you a, a performance-based, self-worshipping guy like me? Hmm, are we that? Oh, yikes, you're one of those. And how did they find out? Well, you know, you didn't laugh at the bad joke. You didn't, you didn't do the unethical thing. You didn't, you know, crave something immoral with that person. You didn't go out and get drunk. You're not living on the world's antidotes to life's troubles, right? You're, you're someone who loves Christ, and they just... They sense it. They smell it. They hear you talk to your wife or you to your husband over the phone and Christ comes up. The trial happens and you're sustained through it in front of them. That's all evangelism. You say, but I haven't had the class. Just be a Christian a little bit out loud and it's on. It's on. Invite people to church. Say, hey, will you come with me to this event? Come with me to that. Hey, I'm going to this. Let people a little bit into your lifestyle. It's evangelism. It's happened. People are already wondering, and when they find out, they'll be a little bit different. I loved working construction because there's so much sailor cussing that goes on in construction. No offense to you construction workers. I enjoyed it because as soon as people knew, oh, he's a Christian, bang, you know, they're, they're faced with, how's my language going to be? What are my jokes going to be? How am I going to act? What am I going to talk about out loud? Am I going to be mean to this person or am I going to sort of starve what's normal to me? That's evangelism. And suddenly when I was on the work crew, I found out all these little weird connections of family members that were praying for this person specifically who was on the construction crew by divine appointment. And this person who was the crew chief whose wife well, you know, was a black belt in karate and he was all offended about that. I remember this. This is like 20 years ago. But then, but then he's saying, you know, but she became a Christian and he's laboring over that out loud with other people. Should I have married her? And all this stuff is going on. And they knew, they knew, they knew I was a Christian. My friend was a Christian on the work crew. And we were just trying to survive out there. We didn't know what we were doing. But really, it was about gospel mission. Government, government officials were listening and regular citizens were listening. Is this your mindset? I'm only halfway through and I'm stopping. I'll say this. If this is your mindset and this is your mission, you're going to be the happiest person in the world. Don't sacrifice your joy with just the emotion of the elections. 
care about things deeply, pray for our country, pray for the decisions that we're about to make, be involved, be involved in the gospel more, care about the gospel more, care about Jesus more, care about souls more. I'm not trying to divide secular and sacred. Don't hear me that way. Just look through the eyes of faith into people's hearts and pray for people to be saved. Pray that God will use you and give you the secret of being content as you reach the world for Christ in the circumstances that he's dialed up for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the wisdom of your word. Lord, I pray that we would be open and always open to your truth and what you're doing. Lord, there are so many circumstances that we get sad about and discouraged by, and Lord, if we would just filter them through your gospel mission, then we would make some sense of our life. And I pray that if there's anyone here that does not yet know Christ, that they would come to know you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.